0: So we've been given this broad topic, sort of Europe is seen from the outside, and uh, it wasn't an easy topic to think about. Um, for two very contradictory reasons. One, because of course Europe has been a dominant historical presence. But surprisingly, uh, particularly in India, there's actually very self- little self-conscious reflection on Europe. Uh, and that's something I do want to sort of talk about in a second. Um, if you scan the literature, there's some diplomatic strategic studies writing around the EU, you know, free trade agreements and so forth. But even if you go back, very few reflections, actually, in what the European experience means. In fact, the only one significant one I came across, and I want to begin with that, it's a literary reference in the spirit of this conference. (coughs) It's the great Hindi writer, Nirmal Varma, uh, who's one of the drawings of modern Hindi literature. And he writes about Europe in two different registers, uh, and I want to begin with those two registers, and then mention three others briefly. So his first novel, *Way which just those days, was actually set in the Czech Republic. It's the only novel, first Hindi novel, actually set in Europe by an Indian writer. And interestingly, it's, the, it's Czechoslovakia, then, sort of Czechoslovakia. And he sees Europe through the history of Czechoslovakia, which itself is an interesting choice. And the central theme of that novel is that the history of Europe, recent history of the Europe, is the history of traumas. Uh, there's the trauma of the Holocaust, and, and a lot of the argument of the novel is really about how inac- inaccessible the experience of the Holocaust is to its Indian protagonist. What does this is actually this is of The Occupation of Czechoslovakia, which he writes about in another, uh, uh, another novel.
1: <coughs>
0: and Nirmal Varma makes an extraordinary point that as he travels across Europe, the dominant image of modern European history is a series of successive traumas. Holocaust, invasion of different countries, particularly Czechoslovakia, World War II warmings. And at one level he says, look, this might provide the opportunity for some kind of a shared universalism built around suffering. But what he finds extraordinary is, despite the fact that trauma and suffering is a universal experience, each nationality understands it through its own particular historical concerns and interests. Uh, And that's the paradox he actually plays on that this history of suffering in 20th century Europe, which could be a history of shared identity, actually doesn't become one. And he then universalizes. (coughs) Every group is kind of concerned about their particular trauma and how easy it is to (coughs) actually render other people's traumas invisible or just indifferent. So that's the first stroke, this, this paradox of a kind of a potential history of common suffering, actually not translating into a kind of common the second register in which Verma writes about Europe, which is much later in his career, uh, towards the last days of his life, and he actually took a much more conservative turn, and he writes a book called India and Europe. And this, it's in a very Hegelian frame. It's kind of the idea of Europe and the idea of India. Right? Where the dominant register is not this, the potential ethical power of trauma, the dominant attitude to Europe is resentment. And the resentment is that Europe has colonized intellectual space. And in that sense, the colonization still continues. There's no thinking outside of Europe. Uh, Dipesh Chakrabarty can say provincializing Europe all he can want, but Europe still remains a reference point, including for provincializing it. And that's the resentment Varma actually talks about a lot. Uh, And for him, the history then becomes the contrast between Europe and India or Europe and Asia broadly is that for Europe, history is about a possible future. So the best Europe is the Europe that for Asia, history is, is about recovering an erased self. So the best India was the India in the past, I mean, in a a conceptual sense, right? But his critique is, in a sense, or or, or, or the attitude towards Europe is that the colonization of, in a sense, intellectual discourse still continues, and that resentment is is, is, is something that, in a sense, constitutes that engagement, even when we don't sort of acknowledge it. So there's trauma, there's resentment. The third register, which you see a lot of, I think, in the last 20, 25 years, is this kind of strange combination of hope and schadenfreude about Europe. (laughs) (laughs) And it has to go with the the question Faisal asked Timothy Snyder, which is, for most Indian intellectuals, Europe was identified with inventing the political form of the nation state. And the Indian nationalist movement was very peculiar because most of its dominant figures were deeply suspicious of the idea of the nation-state. Even in his own kind of of strange way that there is something about this political form that is not quite appropriate for countries like India. And the fascination of the project of European integration was, okay, here's the imagination of a new political form that overcomes that nation-state. You know, we heard yesterday the nation state was an achieved ideal, but at least the idea of the nation state. But the Schadenfreude thing was in order to do that, Europe will have to become like India. The political future of Europe is India, which is, you know, 20 different languages. You'll have the problem of what's the common link language, haha, ha, English. Uh, uh, a cultural sensibility that actually turns which in the Indian context is, is in in, in daily life, quite natural around ambiguity in some senses. Uh, You don't ask questions like whose civilization this is. It is a Hindu, Christian, Islamic, Western, you name it, right? Uh, And Europe will have to actually construct itself as such, right? And the fascination of the EU is that it is that grand experiment in inventing a political form that actually India had seen in 1947, right? So that's the point. On the other hand, I think for India, in a sense, Europe is the future of India because the thing India hadn't invented in 1947 was an internal common market, right? So in that sense, there's a kind of crossing of these two different political (coughs) imaginations, where in a political-cultural sense, Europe begins to look more like India, and in economic sense, India begins to more, more, look more like Europe. So this is the, the moment of hope. Then there's the moment of cynicism. And the moment of cynicism comes from this fact, which is in European debates, there's often a great deal of investment in saying that Europe is not just the invention of a new political form. It's also the invention of a new conception of justice. And, and it's interesting, both the left and the right latch on to the European form for their own reasons. I mean, Hayekians think this is going to be a neoliberal utopia. Habermasians think it's going to be a social democratic thing. And, and it's interesting to see this kind of identification of a political form with a substantive project of justice. In its outward projection, <coughs> Europe has always projected itself as this social democratic Habermasian project. right? This is the environmental project. Uh, This is the anti-American capitalist project. This is the alternative to American empire project. And that has been the European self-presentation abroad. And the moment of cynicism comes from the fact that uh, this story is completely unbelievable to anybody outside of Europe. Uh, On issues like capital mobility and globalization, Turns out, Europe was actually more American than America. Uh, on the virtues of excessive capitalism and finance and credit, turns out Europe was more American than America. Uh, even on the issue of war and intervention, as recently as Libya, turns out Europe was more American than America. Right. So this construction that what holds Europe together is some distinctive economic and political ethos. Right that comes with this political form, invites a great deal of skepticism, and and, and I spoke to a large number of diplomats preparing for this conference. It's it's the one thing that they actually find deeply sanctimonious about Europe, that the gap between this self-presentation and what the actual reality of of Europe is. So so that's the cynicism, that there's a a story being told that is actually a a kind of implausible And finally, there's the register of, you might say, which is I think the current register, the register of indifference. And this register has a particular form which is to say that, is Europe actually going to be an actor on the world stage? It is a significant presence. Uh, I mean, it's India's our largest trading partner, actually, if you take the EU as a whole. So in that sense, it's a very visible presence. because it does not have a unified foreign policy, and, and most diplomats still think of France and Germany and Britain. And I, I think that old joke is "said Who do I call when I want to speak to Europe?" I think still still holds true. But very frankly, deep skepticism that Europe in this new political agency can actually act as a world historical agent.
1: In relation
0: to the United States or arguably even Russia, and particularly in relation to China. Uh, uh, certainly doesn't have the military unity, certainly doesn't have a strategic vision, certainly, certainly doesn't have a bandwidth to be able, able to engage and wake up to the fact that the distribution of the power over in the world has changed substantially. And in that sense, I think, you know, particularly in India, I think most people think America is miles ahead of, the, of Europe in actually thinking deeply about how the world has actually changed. But more importantly, because besides having, in a sense, a lack of military power that makes it, uh, uh, disables it from acting, uh, a certain sense of unreality, and, and I'll just end with this point, which is I think yesterday we talked a lot about sort of Europe as a kind of antidote to American regulatory capitalism, things like privacy, and the power of Facebook and big companies, right? You know what the rest of the world thinks of that? Uh, These are very good ideals. But if you ask the question, is it going to be more exciting for people, young people, to engage with a country that thinks of regulation? Or is it going to be more exciting for young people to engage with a country that says, which are the countries that are going to invent the internets of the future? experiment with AI, all of that. I think the answer is unfortunately, it's actually going to be much more the latter. That in a sense, this is something that, you know, is, it's, 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 it's a form of virtue signaling. But it actually doesn't quite confront the hard realities of technological and power shifts that are actually taking place in the world. So, in that sense, the fear that Europe is actually becoming a little bit more irrelevant. Or, or or to turn the full circle back, when Hegel said at the beginning of the nineteenth century, it doesn't matter what China thinks, are we in the danger? It doesn't matter what Europe thinks. Okay.
2: very much, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I mean, a lot of people have said that it's really true. And uh, it's, um, it's also challenging, I must say, because of the brilliant presentations that have preceded mine. And what I'm talking to is even less sexy that uh, that has been said before, because I'm dealing with the image of the European Union, oh, this technical thing. Uh, this is... Uh, some research I have done for some years, and uh, covering a series of countries, and uh, um, in the end, I mean, I concluded with, um, with the publications, the latest of which is, was in 2014, which means that I had to update to a certain extent of what has been done meanwhile by others in the field. Uh, Fortunately, there is uh, a a very large research group uh, in uh, New Zealand, led by Natalia Chabal and Martin Holland, and they have been very productive, and a few other studies that have been going on for some years. But what was the context within which this uh, field of research started, uh, which is a rather recent one, it's about 15 years. Uh, The context was precisely that of the uh, idea of the distinctiveness of the European Union. It was those years in which we were talking ourselves within Europe that the EU is so distinctive, it's normative power, it's a soft power, civilian power, many t- types of objectivized powers uh, that we have thought about. And also the EU documents were full of this reference, this type of self-representation, always uh, mentioning the roots, the historical roots of this distinctiveness. Now, of course, this also meant being a better power. And uh, so the debate went on inside, and at a certain point, someone started to think, well, let's see whether the others buy the argument uh, and what they think about the European Union, because this is also relevant in order to understand whether the EU is uh, um, is perceived to be legitimate, is perceived to be uh, credible, and hence has more chances to have an impact outside. In this transformative power, Europe attitude towards the outside. So the literature started uh, very rather variegated. The, the bulk of this is, is very uh, systematic in the way in which data are collected. Uh, other research is more fo- and, uh, focused on a specific country, so it goes deeper into the history of the country, territory, the storytelling of the in the country, etc. But all in all, uh, regardless of the, of the uh, methods that were used, uh, and even the actors, so whether it was a state actor or it was uh, a multilateral <coughs> institution, uh, negotiations at the WTO, at the World Bank, or, or at the UN General Assembly, more or less we can as- identify a set of, uh, uh, of results that can be very, very, synthetically summarized, uh, and I will do in a very short while. My, um, so, I summarized it in 2014, and then I thought, well, something must have changed, a lot must have changed, because uh, of the three big crises that the European Union has gone through in the recent years. Uh, the economic crisis that led to the internal euro crisis, the so-called refugee crisis, and then Brexit. Brexit is the fragmentation crisis. The, the, the crisis of the ideal of Europe as being a will that go always in one direction without going backwards. Uh, so uh, my expectation was uh, the damage being done to the, uh, perception, to the perception of the European Union. Now, having read some of this literature, I guess, I hope most of the literature that has been produced, meanwhile, I came to the conclusion, and that is what I will argue on, that this is only partially true. And the reason why this is only partially true is because the damage uh, uh, assumes that the image before was a positive one, (laughs) while to the contrary, there were many elements of weakness that were detected and, and mentioned also in previous research that has been simply, in a simple way, enhanced by the more recent crisis. And the second thing I want to claim is that contrary to what I expected, the crises are those that have made, it seems to me, the biggest damage is not the economic crisis, it's not the Euro crisis, and sorry to say here, it's not even the Brexit crisis, but it's the refugee crisis. And for what it represents in terms of the values of the European Union that has always projected itself as a value-driven actor, and second, in terms of internal solidarity, because the internal lack of solidarity in the case of the refugee crisis was probably even more striking than that that was manifesting itself in the case of the economic crisis and the management of the Greek crisis. So this is uh, where I will go. Uh, What were the funding, I have really to squeeze because I have used already half of my time. Uh, um, First of all, the first uh, important thing to notice is that the EU is largely unknown. So we, we think that we go around and everybody knows about the European Union, but this is of course naive to think Uh, people don't know about the European Union inside Europe so why should you expect the people in Brazil or or South Africa really know and care of the European Union so they tend to mix up Europe and the European Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very also interesting in many surveys in Russia uh, a high percentage of respondents didn't know whether Russia was part or not of the European Union. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it changed after the Ukraine crisis but those were the results before. So that's the first thing. So do not expect that people reply on the European Union really knowing what you're talking about. <laughs> Second, uh, I mean, I'm talking about the large public, of course. <laughs> and we have the elites, uh, and you expect, of course, that the elites are more uh, knowledgeable in it. In general, it tends to be appreciated. Nice guy, mm-hmm. uh, with exception to a certain extent of uh, the Arab countries where the, the Traditionally, the perception has been uh, more um, cold. Uh, very limited media coverage, uh, limited to very specific issues that are relevant to the country in which we are, of which we are talking about. And, and the reason for this was very, very, in, um, it was told by a journalist of Al Jazeera, interviewed in one of the reports, this one on Al Jazeera, and they tried to have a, a, for some months, they tried to have a report on Europe, uh, prime time, uh, and uh, they had to shut it. It was, uh, they said the European Union is difficult to, to tell, it tends to be boring, uh, there, is, there are no sexy stories to tell about the European Union. So that was prior to the crisis, uh, that had made it more, more attractive. But so it's difficult to sell, and it's difficult, and it's not particularly attractive for the auditorium. So very limited media coverage. Um, also, most of the reports are not through direct uh, journalists that are present in Brussels, but it's more through press agencies. So, so they tend to be very standardized in terms of the message that, that, that is delivered. Uh, in, in general, it's not that visible. I mean, I expected that development cooperation, being such a mo- an amount of money that the European Union and the member states spend in countries, would make the European Union more visible there. While it's very interesting to notice, and this I discovered also through recent interviews in South Africa, that what is more visible locally is the agent that is using this money in order to implement the project, and frequently is a national agent. So recently in South Africa, the agenda came more to the discourse was uh, GIZ, the German GIZ. And, and uh, the, they are using EU money, but what becomes visible is the national face. Uh, the perception tends to be, in general, very much influenced by historical memories, as we were saying before, and colonialism is the one, is the filter that mm, plays the most relevant role also in the sense of uh, uh, shaping a sort of of colonialized image of the European Union in the sense of being overlapping with the uh, uh, colonial country that we are more knowledgeable of. So uh, socially shaped uh, the perceptions of the global order, more contingent variables, the personal position, the type of relations with the European Union, the type of interaction, in general, there are a series of rather positive uh, images, but they are all objectivized, or they are all the, with the but following. The first, and is shared by all, it was uh, <coughs> that of an economic giant. Uh, but this economic giant, recognized by all people interviewed, is uh, lacking leadership. So there is a lot, quite a potential of leadership which the European Union is unable to use because of inconsistency in policies, because of, because, sorry, of uh, in a divided <coughs> attitude inside, which makes it also not flexible, because once an agreement is made inside, it's very difficult that they can change this agreement, so uh, negotiations are compromised by this, and also subordinated by uh, uh, two other actors. In general, even when it is considered, a, this is the second point, as a beacon of multilateralism, the most frequent criticism here is that it tends to have a patronizing attitude towards the others, and here, the interviews at the levels of the negotiations for the economic partnership agreements that Ole D, for instance, are very telling in this respect. This criticism of being patronizing, dominating, not listening and teaching is, very frequent. You always find it in the interviews with elites in the other parts of the world, uh, particularly not in the US, but in the southern part of the world. As a model of regional integration, again, interviews in the African Union denounced the fact that the EU is trying to export a certain idea of regional uh, integration, which does not take into consideration the uh, local context, so again patronizing. Uh, when it comes to democracy promotion and negation, it's also recognized to have a role, but always with the but double standard. So it's never something that is fully bright. How did the three crises make a difference? Well, they <coughs> enhanced some of the criticisms that were already there. So internal fragmentation became more clear, introducing China. China is a very, very keen observer of the European Union at the elite level, intellectual level. Lack of a coherence and patronizing attitude became particularly clear in the case of the management of migration. and if I can, I will uh, spend a few words here. Um, the um, weak attitude as a mediator uh, also was noticed in the case of mediation in the case of Ukraine. And the recent analysis of the. Eastern Partnership countries, I mean, perceptions in the Eastern Partnership country tell the story of a potential uh, uh, leading actor that is not leading and is incapable of performing a real uh, mediating role. Uh, The image of of the EU as an economic power has been weakened a bit, but not to the extent that I expected, according to the research that is available. For instance, it's very interesting, Uh, Natalia Chambana's recent interviews in Australia tell the story of uh, an image that has not been compromised that much among the elite. Uh, It's also, to a certain extent, the case of China, Publications of think tanks in Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine tell the same story. Where the image is the most damaged is in the area of the EU as a normative power when it comes to respect of human rights. And here, the uh, perception that has been uh, detected into the MENA region is particularly telling, and uh, the, um, both at the level of NGOs, RGOs, uh, and, and at the level of governments. In the case of intergovernmental organisations and NGO- global NGOs, and even to a certain sense, local NGOs, uh, the. Um, Criticism. The greatest criticism has to deal with uh, the uh, lack of respect of human rights for the migrants and attention to the local uh, context when externalizing uh, migration uh, and borders control. And in the case of governments, the greatest criticism is one of patronizing attitude into requesting uh, policies that uh, was main aim is to control the borders outside of the European border. So this externalization of migration management and border control linked to securitization is very much damaging the image of the European Union, and it's absolutely making not credible the EU as a normative power. I'll end it there. Thank you. Again, I want
1: to reiterate what has been said before. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. I want to say something personal first, that I'm um, kind of, I'm wearing two hats, uh, for obvious reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I'm an academic, I'm a historian of uh, 19th century uh, Middle East, and this is what I will partly be talking about, but I'm also... uh, for lack of a better word, an activist. I was lucky enough to end up in my home country, Egypt, when the uprising happened in 2011, and I found myself in the thick of it. So I have something to say about you in these two um, capacities. Um, so maybe I'll start by my academic one. Uh, I prepared a uh, uh, n- Nothing very significant, just some pictures. Um, about what I'll be talking about. Um, uh, I actually studied here. Uh, my PhD, my degree was here, uh, technically at St. Peter's, but uh, objectively <laughs> at St. Anthony's. And in the Middle East Center here, um, we had a, a project, and the project was, in a sense, how to decenter uh, Europe. Because that was the paradigm, the, the dominant paradigm when I came 25 years ago or more, uh, was uh, this famous 1798 paradigm, uh, Bonaparte coming, spreading enlightenment, um, uh, printing press, uh, and the first printing press coming to the region uh, via the, the French, and th- that became a very Dominant paradigm, and the question was how to decenter it. Um, and uh, a lot of the scholarship uh, was taking place uh, about how to uh, challenge uh, the notion that enlightenment, that uh, you meant enlightenment, and it, it, it was the spread of enlightenment ideas of liberalism and the rule of law, um, as Bernard Lewis would call it. First as a trickle, then a stream, then a flood. Um, uh, if you were to working on the 20th century, other than the 19th century, uh, the paradigm shifted a bit. It's a, a, the paradigm of, uh, of, of uh, imperialism and and conspiracy. The question was, in a sense, how to uh, make sense of this amazing. Dramatic transformation of the map uh, into the Middle East. The Middle East itself being a European coinage, uh, the term. Um, and, and the countries, the, these borders were drawn by European military and, and, and uh, 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 officials um, in uh, in the West, uh, resulting in, um, after the First World War, after uh, the times Peace Conference and the establishment of the mandate uh, resulting either in the French style of direct rule uh, in a place like uh, Syria or the more subtle but equally disturbing uh, one of uh, indirect rule uh, of finding uh, someone who can serve British interests and to rule uh, as it's been called, you know, empire via treaty. Um, this is a particularly interesting picture because this is Faisal, who was supposed to be king of Syria, uh, who ended up, because the French took Syria, ended up being king of Iraq, um, and here he is put on the throne with the British national anthem playing at uh, the background. Um, um, so th- this is a very familiar story in the Middle East. Uh, This is the story of Sykes-Picot, this is a story of conspiracy, and it is literally a household term. Sykes-Picot is not an academic jargon. Um, That the mess we're in now is because of what Witten and France did to us back then, Um, and it's this deeply uh, felt uh, conspiracy. Now, if you're doing intellectual history, we had this very powerful paradigm to cope with. Albert Khourani's Arabic thought uh, in the liberal age, which is an intellectual history of the so-called Nahda, the Arab Renaissance, basically measured against the European yardstick, or what uh, European yardstick. And economically, it was the paradigm of the integration in the world economy. Um, This is a particularly famous uh, study. Now, of course, since then, the field has been completely radicalized. And uh, because mostly of uh, post-colonial studies, uh, it has been completely uh, 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 altered. And Europe has been decentered. But I think uh, a lot of the scholarship, because of its interest in decentering Europe, has lost sight of the colony somehow. Um, I want to share with you maybe a couple of interesting um, uh, angles through which people have been approaching uh, and revisiting these questions. One is this business about uh, Bonaparte in, in Egypt and the French, and to actually study what this printing press was printing. And, of course, it was not printing Voltaire or Montesquieu, it was printing military communiques. Mm. Uh, This was uh, real um, technology used for imperial uh, purposes. And there's now a huge amount of literature on this moment, as I'm sure many of you know, because this is something, for example, that Saeed has worked on. Um, I'll skip uh, this, and I, my own work, uh, on you uh, but not intellectual ideas, but scientific ones, which is interesting. This is the founder of the medical school in Egypt. This is the beginning of modern med- medical science. Um, this is a prolific guy himself, and his literature um, about what he does, this is your typical white, enlightened European man coming to spread science, Um, uh, to a bigoted, uh, superstitious uh, religious uh, society. Islam is the real obstacle to modern science, and his role is to how to harness Islam there. Um, um, For the lack of time, I'll just skip this. I actually was interested in his students and how they think about science, but also how they think of him. And um, so I worked on some of his uh, students and, um, and how they understand modern science. And for them, you know, this whole dichotomy between modern science, especially the argument that Islam stood in the way of dissection, and that is why he could not really found a proper modern medical establishment, was completely bogus as far as they're concerned. It's a dichotomy that existed only in his mind. They are Muslim through and through. They saw no compunction whatsoever in opening up bodies and practicing dissection. And they ended up actually dissecting his own language, uh, uh, rather than uh, having... And that was their problem, rather than... Uh, um, and I'll just end this part with an interesting um, uh, field of work now Again, to revisit Horani's liberal thought argument, um, which is uh, a dissertation that I just read a couple of days ago in Harvard. Uh, These are two uh, famous travelers to Europe in the 19th century. The one on the left is very, very famous for us. He's the main translator. He went to Europe in in the 1830s. He ended up coming back to Egypt, founding a school of translation, and spreading specifically French legal ideas um, and the principle of separation of powers into Egypt, a major intellectual uh, force uh, politically and and intellectually. Um, um, But the scholarship now about him is is that of someone with a deep sense of inferiority complex as opposed to the guy on the right, who is now being resurrected. Now, he also traveled to Europe, but not to Paris. He went to St. Petersburg, not to learn French, but to teach Arabic, um, as a professor of Arabic. And his interlocutors are not Western uh, Orientalists, but Eastern ones from Hungary and uh, Russia. And lo and behold, we now discover that there is <coughs> many Jews including a yoke that is trying to catch up with another Europe, And this guy on the right understood all of this, and his result, the outcome of his scholarship and his writing, uh, now is something much more complex about uh, these different yokes. Uh, it's not simply uh, an imperial Europe, but a, 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 a divided Europe, and Europe meaning different things. And read in different ways by different actors in uh, the region. I think I have four more minutes. To being generous, let's. <coughs> no, I think <can>, I do. <laughs> I want to end with the current moment. As I said, I ended up in Egypt personally. Uh, this is a picture I took on the twenty-fifth of January, the day uprising happened. Uh, And I remember the weeks and months later, uh, we were approached by very uh, well-intentioned European and American experts in transition to democracy, uh, transitologists, uh, who were advising us on how to transition to democracy. And they kept on saying, you have to do lustration, you have to get rid of the old and you have to, and he said, yeah, we know all of this, but it's more different here, it's difficult. Uh, Yeah, we know, we understand, we've been there before. We understand that Hungary was different from Eastern Germany and East Germany, and um, so we understand the argument that we are different, we've heard it before. He said, no. We are not another colored revolution. It's different here. Uh, It's not 1989. So you would say, okay, maybe 1848? No, it's 2011. It's it's a different paradigm. Please listen to us. And one of the main differences is that we do not have a European Union to which we want to join. We have the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia that is the main power of reactionary despotism in the region with an enormous financial power. We have Israel, we have the United States, and we have you to deal with. You are causing a huge amount of damage and, um, and distortion. And that was a very difficult message to say, but the main thing that I want to end up with is that we ended up obviously discovering that we were talking to the wrong Europeans. The other Europeans who really ended up dictating the terms are the politicians, not the human rights activists and the journalists and the academics, who were concerned, as we d- discovered, like what we've been talking about over the past two days, with migration and uh, and the migration crisis. Um, just to, I, uh, I've been following according to the independent um, there is now a budgeted, um, a, a, um, a negotiated budget, uh, the coming one for the uh, European Commission in 2021 to 2027. There is a proposal to increase the amount of money uh, devoted to border control from 13 billion euros to 35 billion uh, euros. That shows um, uh, the, uh, the scale of it and the issue is that we activists, human rights activists, academics and of course we have no say in this. But that discourse is now manipulated and uh, very cleverly by our leaders, especially by someone like Sisi who is basically telling Merkel and May and Macron uh, don't push for openness or democracy in my country, because if you're free, if you're afraid of what happened with Syria, just imagine the scale and the flood of refugees out of my country. Uh, so effectively, he's holding us ransom, us Egyptians, to undertake his own reforms, and of course, or reforms, quote unquote, uh, and of course, the Europeans are getting along. Uh, with him uh, and the last bit uh, to in a sense dispute uh, uh, um, with regards the military might of Europe uh, yes maybe Europe does not have a unified military policy but Europe now is appearing to be a huge supplier of arms yeah. to this uh, region um, the total arms imports of by Middle Eastern countries uh, increased 87% over the past four years. Uh, in this period, four of the largest importers of weapons in the world are from the region. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and uh, Iraq. And while the United States still is a big supply of arms all over the world. Europe, not the EU, but European powers, European, independent powers, uh, uh, France, Germany, Italy, Great Britain, and the Netherlands, are inching in collectively to replace the United States as the main supplier worldwide. But with regards to the region, it's actually, for example, Egypt now. France is the main supplier of arms for Egypt, not the United States, despite the 25 Four years of. of, uh, So, French arms exports to the region over the past four years has increased by 260%, German exports 125%, Italian 75%, British 30%. When they do this, they turn not only a blind eye to violations, human rights violations by all of these Middle Eastern um, despots. Uh, but they also uh, violate their own priority of border control. Because what do these weapons do? They end up being used in wars that cause more and more displacements of population, creating the problem that Europe wants to maintain. So it is, I mean, we've given up on human rights. We've given up talking to Europeans about human rights and democracy. We, we tell them we too are concerned with stability. If you are concerned with your own stability, stop sending these arms to these despots. There's nothing called enlightened despotism. That's a contradiction in terms. These CCs and MBSs and MBZs, they are a huge cause of instability on the long run to uh, the region. So the problem, and I will end with this, is that uh, it's not the conspiracy of Sykes people. What we are now being ruled by is a collusion. We are, it's, it's a conspiracy, but also a collusion uh, between European uh, players and local despots.